strip mall with a two-pump gas station, a liquor store, there's a barber shop, and big red sign that says food pantry and clinic. How's it going? Good, good, good. Yeah, my name is Ben Felder. I'm a reporter with The Frontier, and I've got an appointment with Sam. Sam, yeah. good. How you doing? Ben, right? Sam, yeah. Yes, yeah. Nice, hey. nice to meet hey, you, nice to meet in you. person. I'm in northwest Oklahoma City at a food pantry run by Two Lakes Community Church. The pantry is nestled in a sea of apartment complexes, most of them home to low-income families. Sam O'Bannon is the manager of the food pantry, and he's showing me around. Right now, we got volunteers kind of just packaging up food. Okay. We start serving at 10. Okay. So we're kind of getting people right now, kind of getting signed in and building up some inventory a little bit. For the past few weeks, I've reached out to dozens of people who work in food pantries or with organizations that address hunger all across the state. Oklahoma has the fifth highest rate of food insecurity in the nation. And when the coronavirus-caused economic crisis hit, it resulted in thousands of more families coming to food pantries like this one in Oklahoma City. On today's episode of Listen Frontier, I talk with Sam about what his food pantry has seen in recent weeks, why they actually saw a decrease in demand at first, but are starting to see a wave of new families. Later in the episode, I also speak with Chris Bernard. He's executive director of Hunger Free Oklahoma, and he talks to me about his organization's push to help more families seeking assistance and why the appearance of a quick economic recovery may be deceiving. So I so I graduated from college, man, a um, little under two weeks ago. Oh, wow. uh, and so I started here working, uh, shadowing the former pantry manager in October, um, and then I stepped in full time December. So I've been working here for about six months now as the manager. And driving in, I mean, this community, there's a lot of apartment complexes. Is that primarily the? I mean, a lot of families that are living in, in apartments and. Yeah, it's it's nuts. It's. The, it's what's deceiving is the zip code 73132 if you look at income level the average income level is really not that low but what we've looked at and kind of our research we've done is 73132 ranges to very suburban households which are very high income and then you come to Lyrewood and it's the, one of the most low income areas in Oklahoma so the average kind of meets the middle so from a census standpoint it looks like this area is okay um, but the apartment complexes are some of the most, I think statistically, um, some of the most highest gang rates um, and low income. And so really Lyrewood is all apartments. And you know, there's occasional, there's a business, you know, a chicken spot right next door to us. Uh, but when it comes to businesses, there's not any in this area. Yeah. Um, it's really all apartments and townhomes. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a there looks like there's a bus line that goes through mm -hmm. here, so a lot of people dependent on the, the buses in there. So many bus riders. Yeah. Probably, I'd say probably, I don't know statistically, but I'd say up near 80, 90 percent. Um, you know the guy Larry who just walked in, he's a busser, so he's coming from the south side of OKC, rides a bus here every time, um, 
And so that's pretty usual for people to ride the bus or just to walk everywhere. Yeah. So a lot of our volunteers do that too, yeah. Okay, so when you started manager six months ago, like what was, like how many, how many people were you serving and what, 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 what was the, logistically, what was it like for you guys? Yeah, so we, when I stepped in uh, about December, um, the numbers, I remember we came in into the year um, and it was like probably one of the most packed times at our pantry. Um, so at that time we only had two shifts, the morning shift and the afternoon shift. Um, and I'd say probably total we were serving about um, 60, 65 families per week. Um, and so, yeah, the number I think initially was pretty high. Um, and so that's why we introduced the third evening shift um, to kind of get people a chance when they get off work to come in um, 5.30 to 7. So, yeah. yeah. And so now, obviously, you know, the economy's crashed, you know, mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. And you see a lot of, a lot of people, uh, you know, filing for unemployment and, yes. and, you know, food insecurity, which is already pretty high in Oklahoma, yes. has risen. What's the demand today for you guys? Yeah, it, it's so weird. So we thought that our numbers would skyrocket. But what's happened is food stamps and stimulus are actually um, coming in even more. So a lot of people are relying on unemployment and stimulus checks. They're actually getting more money right now than they would when they were employed. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, so we saw our, initially our first like few weeks, numbers actually dropped from the average because people were using their food stamps and didn't really need the pantry. And so our contact from the food bank said, don't let, don't be deceived by that because those stimulus checks are going to run through them pretty quick. And that's exactly what happened. So about the past, you know, I'd say three, four weeks, our numbers are probably steadily increased every week um, to the point where we're probably up to about 70 to 80, 70 to 75 families per week. Um, serving right now and so what's been probably interesting is we've allowed anyone to come receive food we normally have a certain zip code that we're exclusive to that we're trying to kind of broaden but we've allowed everyone and we're seeing probably 50 percent of our clients be out of zip code um, because most food pantries around the area are shutting down or have shut down um, and so we're seeing just a lot of outside um, communities come here now so that's kind of one thing that's been interesting is um, the reach has definitely gone out further, but the need has probably just slowly elevated each week. Yeah. Are you seeing new families that haven't had to haven't had to rely on a food pantry before? Or? We have. We've seen um, we've seen a, a few, actually a few middle class income um, kind of families right now, and there's a there's a deep shame every time they come, and so that's been uh, that's been hard to see, but it's also just the reality. Um, yeah, because it's one story is, you know, this liquor store right here that was right next to us was a liquor store selling alcohol bottles five months ago. Well, you know, about four months ago, it probably went vacant. Um, and so no one was using it for about a month. So when the pandemic hit, um, we're partnering with another church and we realized that we're serving a lot of people, but right, there's a lot of families and outside zip codes that aren't receiving that food. So we opened up that second side I can show you after. Um, so it's a liquor store, it has a liquor store sign above it, but it's a second pantry basically. Um, and so that serves about 120 families every Monday um, from outside zip codes as well. Um, and that's where we do deliveries, like driving to people's doors. Um, but it's the same food that we serve on Wednesday for the Wirewood neighborhood. Okay. So um, yeah, but it's been a lot of outside families. Yeah. yeah. 
And you guys get your food primarily from the regional food bank? or 90% of it is from the food bank. Um, we have like retail recovery. So basically, you know, if there's a dent in a cereal box, they can't give it out. So we are like the recipients of that. So we, we're partnered with Whole Foods, Homeland, and Starbucks. And so we get like retail recovery items from them once a week. Um, with Starbucks three times a week, um, and then Homeland and Whole Foods once a week. So that's probably about nine, the other 9%, and then 1% is like walk-in donations if someone wants to um, bring by something. But bulk of it, Monday morning, food bank truck arrives from Regional Food Bank, and uh, that's where we get about most of our food. And finally, um, you know, there's, there's a thought or at least a hope that, you know, as quickly as the economy crashed, that as businesses reopen, that uh, that will it will see you know that kind of that V recovery yeah. you know that will quickly kind of go back back to normal yeah. you know hopefully in a couple of weeks or, or a couple of months. Um, I know you don't have a crystal ball necessarily, mm-hmm. but from your position, you know, having a chance to speak with a lot of these families and kind of learn their stories, yeah. how how realistic is that? Or do you feel like this is a need? This increased need is going to be is going to last for just a few weeks or a few months? Or are yeah. you concerned that this is going to be a new reality for a lot of people and that maybe this recovery isn't going to be quite as visible to many. Yeah, it's a great question. My honest answer just from like becoming, you know, family with a lot of these people is um, I think what the, what the hardest adjustment is going to be, you know, post pandemic is um, relying on government funding for a lot of these families to provide. So one problem that I'm just kind of, me and my, our pastor have kind of been talk, talking about um, is what it's going to look like whenever um, stimulus checks, food stamps aren't giving out at the degree they've been given out, um, and how right now there's a huge like dependency on those right now. Um, but once you know post pandemic, those aren't going to be supplied as regularly, and so there's going to need to be you know like working is going to have to start coming back up. And so um, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a pretty big spike of unemployment post-pandemic. And this is going to last food-wise. Um, I don't see this, the, the demand going away anytime soon. Bernard is executive director of Hunger Free Oklahoma, which is an organization that advocates for policies that address food insecurity across the state. A couple of weeks ago, I called Chris to ask about what his organization was doing and what they were seeing when it comes to hunger and food insecurity across Oklahoma. His organization is leading an effort to pull together restaurants in Tulsa to provide meals for those who need it. They had created resources on their website, including a map that showed people where food could be accessed. His organization was also working on creating a hotline to help Oklahomans who needed to apply for state assistance. It can be a challenging process, and he was going to bring together individuals who could answer phone calls to help walk people through the application process. I checked back in with Chris earlier this week to ask how the launch of the hotline program was going. I also asked him about what he was seeing as businesses were reopening across the state, but hunger needs continued. Yeah, so the hotline actually launched Monday. 
Um, and we didn't really start advertising until uh, late yesterday. We got a couple earned media stories today. So our first phone call didn't happen until five o'clock yesterday, but we have been slammed today and we've already gone, we've processed more than a hundred applications already. Wow. How many volunteers do you have in working the call center? So they're not volunteers. We're actually paying them and they're all folks oh, who got okay. laid off or furloughed. So, um, which is kind of cool because we get to employ people, you know, who otherwise might be calling the hotline. Um, and I think today at our max, so it was people were paying plus our staff. I think we had 12, but we're planning on hiring as many as 30 to 40 people eventually. Um, we're wow. doing it in cycles of 10. So we hired 10 last week. We trained an additional nine today. So they'll start next week or maybe earlier, given how much traffic we're getting um, and kind of go from there. So can you kind of walk me through what um, what one of the call takers would do with an individual that calls? Yeah. Um, so they essentially, OK, DHS Live is where you go to apply for SNAP. And so our our folks have that pulled up on their screen and sort of um, ask a series of prompts to allow them to fill out the necessary information to get through an application. And in its simplest form, that can just be like birth date, um, social security number, address, and income. But we try and get more than that so the application can get process faster, right? So we'll ask questions about medical expenses, any earned or unearned income. So like child support is a part of that. Um, and then at the end, we go through sort of the legal requirements in order to telephonically sign the application on behalf of the person. Um, and then we prep them. DHS has to call them back and basically verify and ask for any additional documentation um, and then process their application, hopefully relatively quickly. We're still, DHS is within their required time limits of uh, processing applications right now. And last I heard was well under actually what the maximum is. Um, we do, we send a prompt at the end via text and email that tells them what documents they should have ready to go when DHS calls them. Um, and, you know, we'll also, we'll answer questions as we go, but we've essentially written out a script that allows them to walk through that process. Um, we, we estimate when our folks get really used to it, like at the beginning of today, when we're getting hit with a lot of calls all at once, our process time was around like 45 minutes per application, but already, like as they've learned it in, real world experience. A lot of our folks are getting down to 30 and we have some who are processing applications in 20 minutes. And I know when you and I talked a couple weeks ago, um, a lot of businesses were still closed. Uh, you know, fast forward to today, some businesses are still closed, but, but many are starting to open up. So people are going back to work. Uh, you know, when we talked you, you had said that one of your worries was that as things appear to be going back to normal, that there's still gonna be a lot of need. I mean, kind of how would you assess the need today even as yeah. uh, you know businesses start to reopen so i think it's still really huge so if you look at sort of national studies um brookings came out and said by their est estimates through polling and surveys and stuff 
food insecurity had doubled across the country. And that was particularly severe in households with children under 12 years old. Um, Pew put out a study that said uh, nearly 50% of low-income families reported uh, either job loss or loss in wages due to COVID-19. And I think, you know, we're also running this Tulsa Kitchens Unite program. And what we're hearing from our restaurant partners is, so they're still paying staff, but they're doing it via the PPP loans, right? Mm-hmm. And when those run out at the end of June, their business is not going to be back to normal. Um, it can't be, right? They're going to have to space tables differently. And so they're not going to be able to keep all their employees on. So I I think we're going to see another round of layoffs that come later. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of jobs that, Businesses have managed to keep their people paid, but the impact of this is so long-term that you'll see other industries that have to readjust. Um, You know, anything that requires a um, crowd of people to be a successful business is going to struggle. And, you know, maybe that's not, true. Uh, The folks we're working with are being very cautious in the way they're reopening, right? Other people are taking a much more aggressive approach. um, And, you know, hopefully that doesn't backfire and lead to another spike, which would bring all of this back sort of double fold, I think. But the need is still going to be much greater than normal. And what's been a lot of these federal you know, um, upping programs and making them more accessible has been a great emergency response. But as that starts to go away and the supply chain fixes, so donated, you know, meat and other products starts to dwindle, um, I think you're going to see more of a struggle to meet the need. Right now, it's more about how do we get the resources to the folks in need, which is why we started the hotline. Um, It's the same thing you're seeing with this new USDA program they just launched where um, producers are buying direct from farmers and creating dairy, meat, and produce boxes and then distributing to nonprofits, food banks, and churches, right? Um, there's there, The number one issue is how do you get the resource to the folks who need it, make them understand where the resource is. But I think if you want to call it phase like 25 of this, because things change like every day, um, is going to be more about how how do we readjust if resources start to go away to make sure we're still supporting those folks who are going to take a long time to recover, right? It's not, if you're low income and you have no savings and you lost your job for two months, even if you go back to work full time, you're in a hole already. And so digging out of that doesn't happen overnight either. Um, There are lots of communities that didn't get access to unemployment, including people who are completely qualified for unemployment because they, the system couldn't handle processing everything. Um, Luckily snap hasn't been in that case. It's been there for folks, which has been great. Um, But other folks may not qualify for unemployment or may not have been able to get the stimulus check for whatever reason. Right now, I haven't seen people think the problem is solved. 
And I hope it stays that way. And I think it's kind of our responsibility as nonprofit leaders, if you will, leaders who are in policy and folks who are actually seeing the need to um, elevate those voices and what we see and let people know that, you know, it's still out there. Here's the thing. The need was huge before it hit and we all of our resources were working to meet it, but we weren't doing a great job at accessing them. From my perspective, like on the federal side, like we needed to leverage them better. Um, and that's just more true now, especially because there are more federal resources out there to support people who've never navigated it before. You know, those people that are, are seeking assistance, whether they're calling the hotline or, or you're showing up at, at uh, pantries across the state, uh, how, how many are we seeing that are maybe have never utilized these services before? I mean, are you getting a lot of calls at the hotline from people who've never, um, you know, had to go through this process? I guess that may be the case since they're, they're seeking help on how to do it. Yeah, I mean, we're gathering data on it. Some of them have accessed it before, um, years ago, right, when they had a different family crisis. Um, some never have. We actually don't have the analytics back yet because at the end of the day, we'll run a lot of that. But we know at least some have because you can see uh, historical case numbers. Um, I mean, pantries, food banks, our Tulsa Kitchens Unite program, as high as 70 to 80 percent of the folks who access it say they've never accessed this resource before. Right. So it's their first time going to a pantry or a grocery giveaway or whatever you want to call it. Um, and even the folks who normally access it are in a more desperate situation because those are the hourly workers. Those are the ones who, you know, their job's not going to be easily done remotely. And so the, the demand, if everything shrinks in scale, the demand for those hourly workers who provide whatever service it is also shrinks. So you, they're likely to be struggling more than they were before. Um, so a significant amount. And I mean, if you look at the unemployment numbers, right, that makes sense. If you look at how many new claims we've had, and I think we're going to continue to have for a while. Um, a lot of these folks are going to be folks who've worked since they got out of school or even while they were in school and, you know, may have had challenges, but never something this desperate. And now, you know, they may need that help to get them back on their feet while they need more skills or get more skills for to go into a new industry, whatever it is. But um, yeah, we've seen a lot of people, we've had to train our volunteers, right? Um, just because somebody pulls up in a car that you think is too nice for them to be in need, you can't make that judgment because you have no idea what situation families are in right now. Um, there are folks with some very high paying jobs who got laid off because of this, right? And so, they may be struggling just as much as the next person. And finally, Chris, uh, you know, once again, last time we talked was a couple of weeks ago, and um, I think we all knew that the state was going to have to impose budget cuts for the next fiscal year, um, but uh, they hadn't been done yet. And so now that we've seen that, and, and most agencies are, are going to be hit, have you had a chance to assess that, or have you talked to people and social agencies to kind of get a handle on what, what you feel like the impact of those cuts may be? especially with the, the population that you guys are serving? Yeah, so in in the world of kind of the federal food benefits um, and the administrating administrative agencies of those benefits, I don't 
I don't think the cuts are impacting them much, to be honest with you. Um, the, the staff gets paid for in part by federal administrative dollars. And so because those programs have expanded and the, the, the need is great, uh, and I'll tell you, I haven't done a line by line, but from the folks we've talked to, they're not worried about it impacting their capacity to handle the increased workload they have. You know, that all remains to be seen because you never know what happens as you move through a budget year and other tough decisions might have to be made. But anytime you're cutting budgets to agencies that provide social services during a time where there's a much higher demand for social services, obviously there's a concern there. And it, um, whether it, that cut impacts the ability to do quality control or how responsive you can be, um, I think we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it, there wasn't a lot of time, first of all, to advocate for any agency not to get cut. And also, you know, there wasn't a lot of, I don't think many of us felt like we had a, anything to stand on to argue, don't cut this, cut this, right? Because no matter what you argue to cut, you're going to hurt somebody. The other thing, I mean, if I think a way that we have lifted some burden off these agencies is all these federal waivers and we're continuing to see them come in. So we're really happy to see that uh, federal waivers around non-congregate feeding for kids got extended all the way through the summer by the USDA and that we had written a letter along with Joy Hoffmeister and Superintendent Deborah Gist, both food banks and a lot of other partners, encouraging our DC delegation to push USDA to do that. And they were all real responsive and helpful. Um, you have waivers around meal requirements and times to make some more flexible for families to access it. SNAP is getting waivers approved. Um, in fact, just today, USDA approved a waiver to allow Oklahomans to use SNAP for online grocery purchases. That doesn't mean it's effective today because they still have to implement it, but it means that options there and they can work on implementing it. Um, and we think there are other waivers that are going to come down soon that will provide additional supports to families with kids who are on free and reduced lunch. Um, and I think those administrative waivers that have been granted are crucial in this time when you're looking at those state budget cuts as well, right? So anything that extends the time that they have to do a re-examination of a case or lifts like fairly administratively burdensome requirements that didn't have a lot of impact, if you will, so like required audits or those sorts of things, to be able to lift the pretty stringent rules on exactly when you have to do that and how often I think is helpful and makes it makes it requires less manpower to administer the program if you relieve some of those bureaucratic burdens, if that makes sense. And we're going to have to keep looking at those. I mean, that's one of the things that scares me the most. People thinking the charitable side is fine would be very bad, right? We, we need to keep supporting it. But I think I said in our the last time we talked, like 94% of the food safety net is federal nutrition programs. Um, actually, the two CEOs of the food banks just wrote a great op-ed today in Tulsa World about how SNAP pays for uh, nine meals to every one a food bank gives out. 
making sure those resources are easily accessible and easily administered by the state agencies that are struggling because state revenues are down, um, I think is more crucial than anything. And so staying on our uh, federal decision makers, both in terms of our elected officials, but also the USDA and saying this will continue to be needed. These waivers should be extended for longer and we need to consider other waivers that will ease the burden either on families or state agencies um, to make resources more accessible in a shorter time frame. I think will be crucial. Well, you know, um, anybody who reads your story or listens that you know thinks is struggling because of COVID and thinks they might be eligible for SNAP should feel free to call our hotline and they can go to um, hungerfreeok.org forward slash groceries and the hotline's right there. It's 877-760-0114. It's open from eight to eight, seven days a week. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. You can subscribe to the Listen Frontier podcast feed to get each week's episode, along with our weekly COVID-19 in Oklahoma podcast, which includes myself and my colleague Cassie McClung discussing the latest news on how the coronavirus is impacting our state. You can find more of the Frontier's coverage at readfrontier.org. For the Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you next week.